I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, the headline nationwide prosecutors send 600,000 people to jail, jail every year. Is the real key to criminal justice reform maybe putting those prosecutors behind bars? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Well, there is a group of 65 prosecutors from across the country, including Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill, who are inside a jail cell. They've actually been touring and going behind the scenes to get a better perspective in terms of what is happening to have those crucial conversations as it relates to real criminal justice reform and Sim Gill joins us on the line now to give a little bit of that perspective. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Boyd. <laughs> I didn't want to make anyone think that we were actually putting you behind bars, but uh, you have spent <laughs> well, some time just, with your fellow attorneys uh, checking out the inside well, of a cell. Tell us well, about it. I, 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 you, you made me uh, sort of take a second look there. I was going to just that. I go, hang on, did he get that right? Uh, what did you say? You know? And no, no, this is a really important conversation. Look, uh, uh, we as public prosecutors have incredible authority and power, and, and with that comes responsibility. And uh, and so, and, and in order to continue to build on that trust from our community, I think it's important for prosecutors to uh, exercise that authority, protecting everybody's constitutional rights, as well as making sure that we're we're not abusive of that authority and that we don't compromise on public safety. So one of the things is that you can have a career prosecutor who makes those decisions, uh, not fully aware of those consequences, and never see the inside of a jail cell or a prison cell or a detention center. So this is an effort for us to go and tour those uh, areas, talk to the people who are working there, so we can make sure that we are using that authority appropriately. So take, for example... In Utah, you know, of the 100 arrests that we have, about 88 are nonviolent offenders. But if you lock them up while awaiting trial, uh, they end up losing their jobs, their shelter, their families suffer. And what we've, uh, what, what we've been able to demonstrate is that if you put the restrictions around them, you don't need to occupy that jail bed. And at the same time, that allows us to keep an empty jail bed for that wild, violent offender so without passing those uh, costs uh, to the taxpayer. So it's good policy. It's good insight. And I think hopefully we will exercise that authority more judiciously. Yeah, I think one of the things that you've really brought to the table in this conversation, and it is a crucial conversation, is just how that loss of, of liberty 
doesn't just impact them. It impacts their families. It impacts communities. It impacts small businesses in particular. And I love this whole idea of having that important reminder uh, that uh, that need for care and humility that prosecutors yeah. need to have as they go through that work. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, look, we're a constitutional republic, and uh, and uh, we we have incredible power. And by the uh, by the ability to file charges, you can alter somebody's existence. And sometimes uh, rightfully so, because those people who are at risk to our community uh, should be aggressively prosecuted. But we also need to recognize some of the unseen costs that we pass on to taxpayers. So while somebody is awaiting that adjudication, they lose that job and uh, that family suffers economically or they lose their shelter, then we as the taxpayers are picking up that on the back end of the equation. And if we can safeguard that on the front end of the equation without compromising public safety, we can actually increase capacity for those violent offenders without increasing taxes for our taxpayers. So I think it's just you have to kind of stop and think about that. Another example, when we did this walkthrough, you know, when I talked to the guards and the people who were working there, uh, they said, you know, there's people who will serve 70, almost 80 percent of their sentences without a mishap. So then the question becomes, do we really need that extra 20 percent? And for some people, we do. But majority who've learned that lesson if we uh, if they haven't had any problems, we can release that person and increase that capacity. So these are the kind of conversations I think we do need to have. And I think in the in the long run, it will benefit uh, our citizens. It will benefit our institutions. It will build that trust. And then we don't all have to collectively uh, put the bill for all those other choices if we're not thoughtful about it. Uh, yeah, and ha- having that confidence in that uh, process is, is so important, having that transparency. And one of the other things that that you have noted is the, that, you know, our jails, our prisons, even our juvenile uh, system is is really not designed to be a rehabilitative space. Uh, in fact, sometimes I fear we, we send people to prison and they become, you know, better criminals uh, in that environment, how does the this tour and this these conversations that you're happening with colleagues uh, across the country? How's it helping us get that balance of uh, obviously rule of law that you you mentioned, compassion, which is yep. important, and progress to actually help these people get back as functioning, contributing members of society? Absolutely. I mean, for example, some of the stuff that I've done and our office has done, you know, we helped start the first mental health court in the, in the state 21 years ago. Mm. And when when you don't get them treatment, the recidivism or reoffense rate is about 74, 75 percent. But if you get those services around them and the medication on board, it drops to 19 to 22 percent. And that difference is a taxpayer saving, but it's also the right thing to do. So I think those strategies are available, but we'll never do that if we never get out of our offices and into those uh, into those spaces and with the people who actually do that work. And it's important, uh, uh, Boyd, because, look, uh, let's let's be clear. If you are a risk to our community, we want to lock you up because you you're a risk to our community. But there's many other people who we can actually help without having those extra systemic costs that we have. So I think that's an important conversation. And you touched upon something really important. The legitimacy of our public institutions uh, depends on having those kind of conversations because our citizens uh, need to be able to trust uh, our public institutions as well as that we're safeguarding their tax dollars and we're coming up with best strategies to keep them safe and to also solve these problems uh, for these individuals who sometimes need help. Uh, fantastic. Then just really quickly before I let you go, uh, moving forward, what are, is there one other conversation you hope to be having around criminal justice reform? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you touched upon it. Uh, Therapeutic justice is an important part of it. So to the extent that we can, what are we doing after we hold somebody accountable and their reintroduction back into society and to make sure that our policymakers understand that we get a better return on investment by by leaning into those kind of uh, conversations. So drug court, we helped start veterans courts, for example, about five, six years ago, which has been a tremendous success. Uh, uh, pre-filing diversion for non-violent offenders, which can still hold them accountable without uh, overburdening our system. So we do have the jail space and the capacity for that violent offender. So I'm really happy to say in Utah, we have policymakers uh, who are really interested in that, and how do we strike that critical balance? Uh, and the one thing we have to do is we have to keep trying and keep uh, innovating and keep asking those uh, questions because that's how we'll continue to improve and serve our community. Uh, fantastic. Sim Gill, the Salt Lake County District Attorney. Uh, Sim, thanks so much for joining us and great insight as always. Appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Boyd. Uh, th- this is so important. There's so many things we need to look at. Uh, and I love the fact that Sim Gill and many of his colleagues are, are looking at the inside of jails and prisons and uh, detention centers for juveniles to get that perspective, to make sure we're having the right conversations. Because remember, don't buy into the fake fight. We can have rule of law and we can have compassion and we can have rehabilitation. Those are all compatible principles. Thanks to Sim Gill for leading that part of a crucial conversation. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.